and turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where we left off the last time. We'll begin with verse 14 of chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians, and I'll just read that one verse for a moment, uh, just to give us a heads up on where we are headed, where we are heading, and where we have been. Verse 14 of chapter 10, verse 1 Corinthians says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, you may remember in our previous studies, Paul has been telling them um, that they need to make sure that they take into consideration other people in whatever they do as believers. And he talked about the fact that there were many problems that they were allowing in the church. And earlier on, we saw Paul say to them, flee youthful lusts in chapter 10. And he said also, flee um, fornication um, in an earlier chapter. Those three warnings, flee fornication, flee youthful lusts, flee idolatry, that was the condition of the Corinthian church. As many of them as were gifted by the Holy Spirit, there were all kinds of problems in that church, and Paul has been addressing those problems. Um, but before we continue reading in chapter 10, I want us to turn quickly to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Since Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about fleeing all these things, it's good to know what Paul suggests that we pursue. And he tells us that very, very specifically in 1 Timothy chapter 6 at verse 11, where he says, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Those are the things that we should be pursuing. And in doing so, it would result in our fighting a good fight. And Paul endorses that attitude that he expresses with Timothy in that regard, that if you do pursue these things, it will result in a victorious winning of the battle against the flesh and against the enemy of our souls. Lay hold on eternal life, he tells Timothy. And that's certainly something that that is a goal that we all should have. And we have, haven't attained to that yet, but we are pressing on to the high mark of the calling of God in Christ Jesus. And as we pursue these things, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness... Much of those are what are known as the fruit of the Spirit. It is that kind of pursuit that enables us to be victorious in our Christian walk. Now, the Corinthian church, again, was dealing with issues, and they had written to Paul, as we had discovered in a couple of chapters back, and Paul is, in these last several chapters, answering the questions that they had in areas that they were concerned about and weren't really sure how to address those things that they had asked him about. And so he's been answering those questions. And in chapter 10, he ended up talking about temptation. And he said in verse 13 of chapter 10, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not all allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So Paul is telling the Corinthian church and us that God never has left any of us alone in our battles against 
those things that would quench the Spirit of God in us or hinder the work of the Lord through us. We certainly don't want to quench the Spirit. We certainly don't want to grieve the Spirit. We want to bless the Lord. We want to do His will. And in order for us to do that, we must realize that when temptation comes, we are responsible to resist that temptation, and He provides a way of escape. So we should know that we can have the confidence that there is no temptation that will overwhelm us if we are careful to observe the things of God, the Word of God, and His Holy Spirit who dwells in us. That's why Paul says with such confidence that he is a person who has experienced all kinds of problems in a spiritual battle. In Romans chapter 7, he expresses that in a very, very uh, specific way by saying that he sometimes does the things that he doesn't want to do or doesn't do the things that he does want to do. And then he ends that chapter with the crying out, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? But chapter 8 begins with the most profound, positive statement in the book of Romans with regard to how we uh, can expect the Lord's help. Because he says in chapter 8, verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We need to understand that God does not condemn. God does not do anything that would be against his great love for us. He does chasten us because he loves us and he'll allow that chastening from time to time whenever we go astray. But the condemnation that we sometimes feel doesn't come from God. It comes from the enemy of our souls. Let us be mindful of that. But in chapter 10, here again, Paul is addressing questions that these uh, Corinthians have been asking him. And he's already dealt with some of the things that we're going to be looking at, but with a little bit different slant. In the next section that we're going to be looking at, He's actually going to be talking about idolatry with regard to the eating of meats offered to idols. Now, he has already talked to us with regard to the eating of meats. Uh, that was one of the earlier questions that the Corinthians had asked, but it wasn't in the same context that he's placing here. There, it was just a question, should we eat the meat that's offered to idols? And Paul said, look... Uh, it doesn't matter unless the person that you're eating a meal with is not comfortable with that. And as a believer, you should treat that other believer with great respect and not eat that meat in front of that believer because it would be wrong for you to do that. Again, liberty versus love. Now here in chapter 10, Paul is again saying, Flee from idolatry. In verse 15 he says, I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Now Paul is telling them about the communion, the Lord's table, the cup and the bread that we take at our communion very much was done in a similar fashion from the very beginning. But what's that got to do with idolatry? Well, he's going to continue on and explain that uh, as we read further. He says, 
Verse 18, Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? So what he's saying that in the Israeli Levitical law, the people of God would bring a peace offering to the priests at the tabernacle or eventually at the temple. They would offer up to the Lord a portion of that offering. Another portion would be given to the priests and another portion would be consumed by the people who bring the offering. It was an offering of communion, of fellowship, a peace offering where they could eat together with the Lord part of that sacrifice. So they, they partook of that flesh at the altar of sacrifice in the temple. Now he says, what am I saying then in verse 19? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. It's okay for you to have fellowship with the Lord, obviously, in that fashion that the people of Israel participated at the altar uh, under the Levitical law. But what Paul is saying here is, don't think that it's proper for you to uh, allow yourselves to partake of those kinds of sacrifices at the altar of the gods of the, of the Gentiles. The idols are being worshipped in very much the same way that God would be worshipped in that peace offering. They would sit at the table and they would eat a feast in the uh, idol temp- uh, temple. And that's what Paul is saying here. Don't participate in that because what you're doing is you're setting an example that says it's okay to participate in those, those things that pertain to idol worship. I don't want you to have fellowship with demons, he says. And then in verse 21, he further explains that, and he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So Paul is making sure they understand that if they participate in those things with regard to demons, it's a slap in the face to our Lord. They should be worshiping the Lord and seated at his table and enjoying the fellowship with God, but certainly not sharing that kind of benefit of communion with the Lord that they have with communion with demons as well. Verse 23 says, again, repeating a very similar thing that he said elsewhere, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Paul again is saying, liberty, yes, but love is more important. Don't forget that. You have rights. You have privileges. But don't let your rights and your privileges supersede how it affects others in the body of Christ. So very important for us as believers in this present day to make sure that we follow these simple instructions of the Apostle Paul. Even though there are not idols that we perhaps worship in temples, uh, there are idols in our lives many times that we don't even consider to be such a thing. And unfortunately, we overlook that as a reality. There are idols in our lives. Whatever takes the place of God worship is perhaps an idol in our 
daily lives. And we need to make sure that we understand that God doesn't want to share his glory with any other. And take note also that Paul identifies the fact that there are demons behind those idols. The idol itself is nothing. And we see in Psalm 115, in Psalm 135, in Isaiah, I believe, chapter 46, the reference to idols as being made by humans after their likeness. And how foolish is that to think that you can make your own God? But really, if you think about it, anything that we do that turns our hearts away from God is an idol that we construct in our minds, if not physically. But they went to the extreme of creating idols that they could look at. They had eyes, they had ears, they had noses, they had mouths, they had hands, they had feet. The psalmist tells us in both of those places, 115 and 135, that those are foolish things to consider because they are nothing. But Paul does say that there may very well be demonic activity that is behind those idols. So they need to be very careful in their idol uh, worship. And uh, if they used to attend those kinds of services in the uh, temples of those uh, Gentile idols, they are certainly not to be doing it any longer. Verse 25 says, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Going back to what he had said earlier, it's okay to eat the meat that's been offered to idols, but here he's going to say, let's look at this a little bit more deeply, if you will, because it does concern, again, other believers and even those who are outside of the faith. Verse 27 says, If any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner and you desire to go, Eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience sake. In other words, this is a Gentile. He's not a believer. He invites you to his house for dinner. He sets a steak before you. Don't ask him where that steak came from. That's the idea. If you don't know, it's not a problem. But, he says in verse 28, if anyone says to you, by the way, this was offered to idols. Do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you, and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Again, repeating verse 26. What's he mean by that? Well, a Gentile unbeliever is saying to you, this was offered to idols. And if you eat that and you know that you shouldn't be doing so, perhaps it's a trap. Perhaps the non-believer is testing you. Or maybe he doesn't know. But either way, it's not a good Christian example to partake of that. It's much better to say, I, I really can't partake of that because I'm a believer. That's what Paul is implying here. And he says, conscience, again in verse 29, is the, the issue, but not your own conscience of the other. Well, verse 30 says, but if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I gave thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I love that verse. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now that goes through our entire experience in this life. Everything that we do should be centrally focused on whether or not it brings glory to God. And that's how we should always 
consider every activity, every thought, every deed, every decision that we make. Always do it for the glory of God. Finally, he says in verse 32, give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. What an attitude. I don't do it to please myself. I do it to please my God. And I want to make sure that in the effort that I make to please God, that I don't give offense to anyone, whether they be Jews or Gentiles or members of the body of Christ. I want to make sure that I please men in all things, not seeking my own profit. I want to have them be the ones who are blessed instead of me if that's necessary. Then in verse 1 of chapter 11, which probably ought to be the last verse in chapter 10, Paul says simply, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. That is how we should live. We should be able to say, as Paul did, be imitators of me. But it's conditioned on whether or not we imitate Christ. And when we see what Christ did when he walked on this earth, all of the things that he proclaimed, the way that he lived his life, the teachings that he brought to his disciples, all of the things that he shared with them that are revealed to us in the Gospels and elsewhere, those are the things that we base how we are to live because we are to use his example. That's not easy. And I can't tell you, nor can any of, all of us really, really say matter-of-factly without ever, ever deviating from this. We can't say, imitate me always. It's not going to happen. Sometimes we will drift. Sometimes we will fail in our attempts to imitate Christ. Sometimes we'll be diverted. Sometimes things will happen that will cause us to respond in a way that isn't Christ-like. But when we do what Jesus did, it's good that we can say, imitate me in this fashion also. Well, verse 2 of chapter 11 begins now to talk about another area of their concern which, with regard to the women in their body. Now, I think that perhaps it would be helpful to try to get a picture in our mind about what it must have been like for women in that first century church in Corinth. Remember, Corinth was a city that was terribly infiltrated by prostitution and very many evils in the day. All kinds of terrible things were going on in the city that made Corinth to be world-renowned as a place where all kinds of debauchery takes place. And it was commonly said about anybody that was considered to be an evil person that you are acting like a Corinthian. So the Corinthians had a name, and unfortunately it was a bad name. They had a temple to Artemis and or Diana. And that temple 
had about a thousand or more prostitutes, both male and female. The female prostitutes typically would shave their hair, and it was very common only for married women to wear a veil over their heads. That signified, that veil over their heads, signified that they were married, they belonged to somebody. So a woman walking around the streets of Corinth, unveiled, uncovered, was basically announcing, I'm available. And a married woman just wouldn't do that. However, they began to consider as Christians that they had liberties that non-Christians didn't have. And so oftentimes, apparently in Corinth, it appears that that was part of the question that they were asking, is it right for our women to unveil themselves in the assembly? Paul is answering that question. He says, now I praise you, brethren, first of all, that's an important part of what Paul is about to say, he praises them, gives them commendation for the doing of right things. I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So Paul had already given them all kinds of apostolic instruction that he calls traditions here. And they responded to that, and he's praising them for their positive response. But, he says in verse 3, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. What Paul is saying is, there is an order. There are different levels of authority. Beginning with God the Father, He is the head over Christ in the sense of being His authority, and Jesus submitted Himself as the Son of God to the Father. That makes Him not less than God, He is still God, the Son. But in terms of authority, he answers to the Father. When the Father says to Jesus, go get your bride, Jesus will go get his bride. It's not Jesus' decision to make, it's the Father's decision to make. Jesus submitted himself to the Father while he walked on this earth. He gave up his glory and submitted himself to becoming as a man, just like you and I, humbling himself to become a man. But he was looking forward to that day when he would receive once again the glory that was his with the Father that had been his glory from the very beginning. But he is under the authority of the Father and we men are under the authority of Christ as our head. Now that means that he has a specific level of authority over us and we need to submit ourselves to him as he willingly submitted himself to his father. That's something that we men must do. And in the same way, women who are married are to submit themselves to their husband's authority. Now that is not something that is easy to explain. I hope that you don't misconstrue what I am saying. This authority has nothing to do with lording it over the woman. It has nothing to do with an authoritarian, you do it my way or else kind of attitude. That is not 
what is biblically acceptable. In fact, in Ephesians chapter uh, 6, we find Paul talking about that marriage relationship. And in verse 22, again, we hear Paul say, women, submit yourselves to your husbands. Some men really, really like to focus on that verse, but they don't remember to look at the preceding verse, verse 21, which says, to each of the husband and the wife, submit to one another. In other words, we are not to experience any kind of authority between a husband and a wife that makes the wife to be something less than the man. She is under him in terms of a covering. He is her protection. He is her champion, if you will. In the Renaissance period, they, they had the champion who would uh, just go and protect the uh, damsel in distress. In that same fashion, we are to take care of our wives and submitting to her as much as she is willing to submit to us. But she can only be willing to submit to us if we are to love, if we are willing to love as Christ loved the church. So that's a standard. It's a very high standard for men. And it's very, very important that we realize that if we don't love our wives the way Christ loved the church, then we should never expect that kind of willing submission from our wives. But submission should be a willingness-inspired activity. And it can only happen when it's done in a proper way. So he says that's the authority. The man is head over the woman. Christ is a, a, a head over the man. The father is head over God, uh, the Jesus. Every man... He says in verse 4, praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Remember we talked about the prostitutes who shave their heads? What Paul is saying is in the Corinthian church, because of what they were experiencing, they were asking this question, and Paul is answering their question. If the woman uncovers her head, it may be acceptable she has the liberty to do that. But is it loving for her to do that? Again, it is all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. So Paul is saying that there is a reason for the woman to be at least willing to say, all right, I won't uncover my head, even though I have the liberty to do so, because I don't want to offend others who think that it's wrong. Well, verse 6 says, if a woman is not covered, let her also be sure. And if she decides not to cover herself and, and it's going to present a problem, then she may as well just shave her hair. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. So Paul is just saying, okay, you guys need to work this out. Here are the principles. Here are the guidelines. And you make it so that it works in your church the way it should. He's going to end up continuing to talk about this 
But I want you to understand that Paul in verse 16 will say, if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. So Paul is saying, this isn't something of importance that is needing to have some kind of command or doctrine established. It's a custom. And we don't have a custom like this, and neither do we have that custom in any of the churches. So you work it out in the best way that you can. Going back to verse 7, though, he says, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Going back to the book of Genesis in chapter 2, Paul is reiterating the fact that man was created first, and man was alone, and God said that in all of his creation it was good. And when he created man, he said, it is very good. And then however long later, after man had been in the garden and noticing that all of the animals had mates, God comes along and says, it's not good that man should be alone. So he made out of man's body a woman. She was the most beautiful woman that Adam ever saw. I like to say that about my wife, too. She is in my eyes. And I want men, every one of us, to look upon our wives with that kind of adoration for their charm, inner beauty, as well as outer beauty. Both are important. For a man indeed not ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, Paul says in verse 7. So, the last verse that I want to look at, together with you, with regard to um, this issue, as is stated by the Apostle Paul, is a verse that I have no answer for. Verse 10 says, For this reason... The woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I have no idea what that means. There's a few people that have ventured guesses, but it's only a guess. I don't even think that it's something that I'm going to even begin to think about uh, explaining because I just can't. But somewhere along the line, Paul considers the angelic host to be somehow able to observe what's going on in the church and he's saying, saying here that women ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. We can check with Paul in glory when we get there. Um, that's the best I can do for you at this point. Verse 11 says, Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. Elsewhere he says, There is no difference, male or female, rich or poor, Black or white, Gentile or Jew, all of us, slave or free, all of us are one in Christ. And he's saying that here in a slightly different way, but its meaning is identical. No man is independent of women, nor women independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, 
We have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. How do you measure the length of hair if it's too long for a man to have his hair growing out down to his shoulders, perhaps? Jesus apparently must have had his hair down about that far, or maybe further. Um, If you go back in our history, many, many men through the course of our history had longer hair than is customary today. The Roman culture tended to have short haircuts. Romans did not grow their hair very long. Jews, on the other hand, typically grew their hair fairly long. But the women's hair was exceptionally long, apparently, compared to the men. And so it's a matter of, I think, cultural preference, and cultural preferences change over time. If you go back to the beginning of our nation's history, most of the men had relatively long hair. A lot of the men in the West grew their hair long during the expansion days. So it's not really something that we should focus on too awfully much, but apparently it was a question again that they were asking, and Paul is giving his opinion on these things, and in this case, he's saying we don't have any real custom about this in this church or in any of the churches, but he gives these guidelines, simple principles that he wants them to consider so that they don't let their liberty overtake their love for others. Now in verse 17, Paul goes back to a topic that he's also covered just a few verses before, the Lord's Supper. But he goes into detail about the Lord's Supper as it was being observed in Corinth. And again, Paul is answering questions, and he will continue to answer questions from the Corinthian church all the way through to the end of chapter 11. But here in chapter 11 verse 17, Paul addresses another question regarding what they called the love feast, the agape feast. It was coupled with the participation of observation of the Lord's Supper, where they would take a bread and cup and they would observe the Lord's table in that fashion. But verse 17 says, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. There's a hierarchy in the church. Uh, Those who were considering themselves to be more important than others. They maybe had a better status in the uh, uh, culture, and and some were slaves, and some were... um, employers, uh, wealthy, or average workers. But there was kind of a hierarchy in that church that should not have existed. He's addressing that. But it resulted in uh, really very poor examples that were being set by some of those who had the great wealth that others did not. He goes on to address that. In verse 20, he says, Therefore, when you come together in one place... It is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. Not a good thing. What? Do you have 
houses, or do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Remember in verse 2, he said, I praise you, brethren. Here he's saying, this is not praiseworthy stuff that we're dealing with right here. And so Paul is now taking the time to make sure they understand that they need to correct this situation. And it's got to be done in a right way. With regard to love versus liberty. He talks now in verse 23 about the institution of the Lord's Supper because again it's connected. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. So Paul has already instructed them in this part of the gathering together of the church, what it is intended for and what should be done as they do this uh, gathering together in the Lord's name. He says, I also delivered these things to you that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take note of the fact that in both the cup and the bread, it is done in remembrance of the Lord. And then in verse 26, Paul adds, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. When you take that bread and you eat that bread, you are taking a symbol that states that Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross. When you drink that cup, you're drinking a symbol of the blood that was shed for you at the cross. So every time you take that bread and that cup, it is in remembrance of the Lord's death. And we do it until he comes. It's an ordinance in the church we only do it perhaps once a month. Every once in a while we'll add a time of communion on special occasions. There are some churches that do it every time they gather together. It's a preference issue. It's not something that should be mandated. But it's also not something that needs to be done by a pastor. Uh, each one of us could do it in our homes, among family members, whenever we want to do so to honor the Lord. Remember, the church isn't just the place where we worship. The church is you and I. Where two or three are gathered, in my name, Jesus said, there I am in your midst. So it's good to realize that any one of us can administer this holy supper that we call the Lord's Supper. Verse 27, though, continues to say that if it's done with the wrong motive, with the wrong heart, with the wrong intent, it's an issue. Verse 27 says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Paul is giving this warning to the Corinthian church. When you go to the Lord's table, make sure 
that you've examined your heart? Is there sin that needs to be dealt with? Is there forgiveness that needs to be extended to somebody? Is there right that needs to be, or rather wrong, that needs to be righted? Is there any issue that needs to be considered before you partake? Because if you partake of the Lord's Supper with bitterness in your heart, anger, or malice toward another, you're doing it with the wrong motive. You're doing it in a way that ultimately might actually be very, very personally to your disadvantage. And that's what he says here. Some, he says, for this reason, are weak and sick among you and many sleep because they have done this. And apparently, the Lord considers it to be a very wrong thing for us to participate in if we don't do so in a manner that pleases Him. Examine yourselves. And we always try to emphasize that whenever we have our communion together, that we take this communion as believers um, and we want to make sure that we go to the Lord in prayer to search our hearts, examine yourselves, search me, O Lord, and see if there be any unrighteousness in me. Verse 31 says, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Don't be in a hurry to take all the food off the table as much as you can put on your plate, in other words. Wait until everybody shows up. Stand in line at the end of the line instead of at the front of the line. Therefore, when you come together, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. So apparently there are more questions that they had asked in their letter to him. And Paul's here saying, all right, that's enough. I'm not going to cover any more of those questions. But when I get to Corinth, and I will be coming, the Lord willing, I will answer all the other questions that you have presented to me and any other questions that you might have uh, after uh, I get there. So Paul is planning on arriving in Corinth. And again, it's his intent to do so to establish the church as a chaste virgin for the Lord. Without spot, without wrinkle, establish the church as a pure, holy vessel unto the Lord. That's the goal of anyone who is in leadership. If it's not the goal of a person who is in leadership, then that person should never be in leadership. So that is something that we should all take very seriously as we move forward in our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. Now in chapter 12, he begins a topic of spiritual gifts. And we'll spend some time in those areas as well as uh, later on in chapter 15 where he talks about the resurrection. So there's a whole lot more in this book that we need to really look at and consider uh, for our benefit in these last days. So until the next time, my beloved, I pray that the Lord will bless you and keep you and protect you and guide you by His Spirit. Be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen.